All right, well, we're there in, uh, in James chapter number 5, and uh, tonight uh, we're going to be finishing up our study in the book of James. We've, this is now our 11th week in James, and we've gone basically verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and I thought about breaking up chapter 5 into two, maybe three weeks, but I decided, you know what, we're just going to do it all in, in, in one night, and uh, we're going to move on. So in order to be able to take on a lot of information in a relatively short amount of time, I'm going to give you an outline of the book and uh, of the chapter, and as we outline it together tonight, I'll give you some practical applications and things that hopefully will help you in your life. So for those of you who like to take notes, or if you're able to take notes, uh, the first thing I'd like you to notice, uh, we're going to look at verses 1 through 6, and in verses 1 through 6, I'd like you to notice the emptiness of pleasure. The emptiness of pleasure is point number one tonight. If you look at verse 1 of chapter number 5, the Bible says this, go to now. Ye rich men. Now notice he highlights this idea of rich, uh, he, he says rich men, and the reason that he talks about rich men is because he, he gives us an example of those who we would all assume are uh, happy or fulfilled or uh, experiencing joy, you know, usually, especially those of us, you know, for those of us or all of us who live in the United States of America, a very covetous type nation, you know, we, we often think of that American dream, you know, and, and you can make a little more money and you'll be happier if you're uh, better set up financially. But notice what he says, he says, go to now you rich men. Weep and howl, and notice what it says, for your miseries, for your miseries. Now, the word misery means a distress or a suffering. He says, for your miseries that shall come upon you. Now, here's what's interesting, and here's what you got to understand, okay? We assume that if I just had a little more money or if I just had, you know, if I was just more successful, if I was rich, you know, that would take care of all my problems. I would have no stress and I would be happy. But the opposite is the truth. And, and it's, it's not that everyone who's rich is miserable, but there are plenty of people out there. There are plenty of Hollywood stars, football players, singers, actors, you know, who have all the money in the world, yet they are miserable and they are depressed and they are discouraged and they are upset. And here's what you got to understand. Material things do not bring joy. You cannot be happy based on the things that you have. You cannot be happy based on the amount of money that you have. Money doesn't bring joy into anyone's life. And he says, go to now, you rich men. Weep and howl for your miseries. Look down at verse number 5 just real quickly. Notice what he says. He says, ye have lived in pleasure. And I want you to make note of that word pleasure. We're talking about the emptiness of pleasure. He says, ye have lived in pleasure on the earth and been wanton. Ye have nourished your hearts as in the day of slaughter. Now, here's what you're going to understand. Let me go ahead and give a disclaimer just real quickly. Keep your finger there in James and go with me to 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Now, if you're going backwards uh, in the Bible, you're going to go past the book of Hebrews, past uh, Philemon, past Titus, past 2 Timothy, into 1 Timothy chapter number 6, okay? Let me give a disclaimer. God is not against people having money. God is not against rich people. Sometimes you preach stuff like this and people, you know, we, we want to all be mad at the rich guy, you know, and, and, and here's the real reason we're mad at rich people is because we're not rich, <laughs> you know, because we're jealous and we're envious and we wish we had the things that they had. And that's covetousness and problems in our own heart. And here's what you understand. God is not against money. He's against the love of money. 
All right? God is not against someone being rich or being wealthy. In fact, if you study the scriptures, you'll notice that many of the men who were used by God in the Bible were men of means. They, they had uh, money. They had businesses. They had the ability, the resources to be able to accomplish things. We talked about it on Sunday morning. Nehemiah leveraged his resources and his abilities and his relationships in order to be able to help people. And you've got to understand, there are many people out there, and, and you know, if you're finding Finances are messed up. You ought to work on your finances because there are many people out there who cannot serve God because they're so under stress because of their finances. You know, the reason that the Good Samaritan was able to, was able to help, you know, in the way that he did in that story that the Lord Jesus Christ told is because he had an animal to be able to put the man on. He had money to be able to pay for his, you know, uh, stay in the end. He was able to take care of him financially. And there's many of us who wish we could help people and, and be a blessing, but we're not able to because we are so bad with our finances. So you got to work on those things. God is not against uh, having money. And just if someone is rich, that doesn't make him evil. And by the way, you're not godly because you're poor. In fact, you may just be, you know, uh, an unjust steward and not, uh, not managing your finances well. Look at 1 Timothy chapter number 6. Look at verse 9. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 9. The Bible says this, but they that will. Now that word will means a desire. It says, but they that will be rich. So those who have a desire, a lust to be rich. Notice, Fall into temptations and a snare. The word snare means trap. And into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Look at verse 10. For the love of money. Now notice, some, a lot of people like misquote this verse. It doesn't say for money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted. Notice that word covet. Coveted after they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You can go back to James chapter 5. So I want you to understand, God is not against money. God is not against you having money. But God is against people loving money and people desiring money and allowing that to take over uh, their lives. Because here's what you, and and let me say this, because sometimes we preach these things, we say, well, you ought not love money. You should you know, use money. It's good to have money. It's used to, you know, use the resources that God has given you. You ought to steward your finances well, but you ought not love money. But let's get real practical for a second, okay? How do we know if someone loves money? How do you know if you love money? How do you, how, how do you know if, well, I'm just a hardworking individual trying to take care of my family and, and, and you know, pay the bills and I want to be able to give to the church and, and further the cause of Christ, you know, as far as I can. How do I know if I'm that or if I'm an individual who, who just loves money? And notice the answer is in James chapter 5. Look at verse 4. James chapter 5 and verse number 4. Notice what the Bible says. James 5, 4. Behold, the hire of the laborers, who have reaped down your field, which is of you. Notice what he says, kept back by fraud. says, you've got a worker, but you're not really, you're ripping them off and you're not paying them, you know, what you're supposed to pay them because you love money so much that you're trying to get over on them and take advantage of them so that you can have, you know, a bigger piece of the pie. He says, which is of you kept back by fraud, crieth and cries of them which have reaped are entered into the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. Look at verse 5. Ye have lived in pleasure on the earth. And been wanton. Now that word wanton, that's an older word we don't use today. The word wanton means this, without regard for what is right. 
He says you lived in pleasure and you allowed that pleasure and that lust and that covetousness to take over where you're no longer regarding. Is this right or is it wrong? Is it wrong to keep back money by defrauding someone and lying? Is it wrong to steal? Is it wrong? And he says, which ye have been wanton and have nourished your hearts as in the days of slaughter. Verse 6, ye have condemned and killed the just and he does not resist you. Here's what you got to understand. You say, how do I know if I love money? When you sin in order to have money, you love money. You understand that? You say, well, I'm not sinning. You know, I get up every day. I work hard. I'm honest. I try to do right. I try to do what God wants me to do. I tithe. I give offerings. I I love my family. I love God. I don't allow it to consume me. Uh, but, But I'm making a lot of money, and God's been blessing me. Hey, praise the Lord for that. We need people like that. We need, we need godly men that will go out and work hard and make money and support missions, support, you know, uh, churches and, and, and do all these things. But as soon as you cross the line into, I am now going to sin, I am now going to lie, I'm now going to steal, I'm going to do something dishonest, I, I'm going to do something that goes against the law of God because I need money, you've now crossed the line into a love of money. So when you skip church... And you know you ought to be in the house of God, but you skip church because you're going to work because I just need that dollar. Guess what? You love money. When you lie and you steal and maybe you, you, you kind of just, you know, over-exaggerate how much time you actually stayed extra that night when the boss was gone, you know, and you just say, well, you know, I only stayed 50 minutes, but I'm going to put here 45 minutes because I just need the money. You love money. As soon as you cross that line into, I'm not going to tithe, I'm not going to give what belongs to God, I'm going to steal it from God. I mean, did it, doesn't Malachi say, will a man rob God? I'm going to keep back what belongs to God, and I'm going to steal from God because I, I need the money. Hey, you love money. You've crossed a line into the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's foolish and hurtful lust, and it's a snare. And, uh, you know, God is, is not against money, but God is against you crossing the line into the love of money. And when you keep it back by fraud. Now, I want you to notice that word pleasure in verse 5, and we're going we're gonna to go back to it. But no, go back to verse number 2 just real quickly. Verse number 2. Here's what you got to understand about money. And remember, James chapter 5 is, um, is in the context of James chapter 4. If you remember last week, we, we, we spent the, the last part of James chapter 4 dealing with this idea of perspective. Your life is but a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanisheth away. When we learn to live our lives in the right perspective and the fact that our lives are short, they are brief. The time we spend here on earth is not very long. And, and the things of earth are temporary. You know, that's the perspective that James chapter 5 is written in. And notice what he says in verse number 2. Because here's what you're going to understand. Not only do material things not satisfy, they, they, they don't fulfill you. You always need more. You need one more dollar. You need one more vacation. You need one more raise. You need whatever it is. I need just a bigger house or, you know, another car. They don't satisfy, but here's what you got to understand. The things of this world, not only do they not satisfy, but the things of this world, of this world do not last. Notice verse 2. Your riches are corrupted, and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver is cankered, and the rust of them shall be a witness against you, and shall eat your flesh as it were fire. You have heaped treasures together for the last days. Here's what he's saying. You're trying to find fulfillment and something that is being destroyed. He said, the things of this world, they don't last. They get corrupted. Now, as we've been studying the book of James, and and tonight's the last sermon in James. Next week, we're going to start a brand new book of the Bible. But as we've been studying the book of James, I've been 
uh, showing you how James has a lot of throwbacks to the Sermon on the Mount. Remember the great sermon that the Lord Jesus Christ preached in Matthew 5, 6, and 7? He preached a lot of great truths. And, and James has been kind of borrowing a lot of those ideas from the Sermon on the Mount. I want to give you another example here. Go to Matthew chapter number 6. Another reference to the Sermon on the Mount here. Matthew chapter number 6. Matthew chapter number 6 and look at verse number 19. Matthew chapter number 6 and verse 19. Matthew 6 and verse 19. The Bible says this. This is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. He says, look, if your goal is to just get rich on this earth, is to be comfortable on this earth, it's just, and look, there's nothing wrong. We already said it. There's nothing wrong with being successful and having a nice house. I'm glad if you have a nice house, if you have a nice car, if you've got, God's blessed you with those things, I'm, I'm thankful for it. I, I'm glad for you. Uh, but here's the thing. If that's your goal, you're going to live a miserable life. Because Matthew 6, 19 says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth. Now you would say to Christ, well, why not? What's wrong with laying up treasures on the earth? And notice what he says, where moth and rust doth corrupt, and where thieves break through and steal. Does that sound like James? James says, your riches are corrupted, your garments are moth-eaten. He says, the rust of them shall be a witness. And Jesus said, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves break through and steal. Notice verse 20. He says, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. And here's what he's saying. And here's what's interesting about money, is that money is temporary. It is temporal. It does not last. You know, Proverbs says that it makes itself wings and it flies away. It doesn't last long. You just kind of have it and it's gone. But here's the thing. Here's the interesting thing about temporary money, that it is when it is invested in things of eternal value, you can now turn something that is temporary and turn it into something that will be, that you'll be eternally grateful. And he says, hey, don't invest in the stock market. He said, don't invest in a CD. He says, lay not up for yourselves treasures upon the earth where dust and wrath and moth doth corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. He says, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He says, invested in the things of God. He says, invested in people, invested in life, invested in missions, invested in churches, invested in things that matter for eternity. He says, because when you do those things, the stock market doesn't crash in heaven. And people don't break into your house in heaven. And, pe- and you don't, you don't lo- there's no great depression in heaven. And, and, and people say this, well, I don't think you should be talking about money. You know, and, and we don't talk about money a lot at Verity Baptist Church, but we'll talk about it when it comes up in Scripture. But here's why you're thinking that. Look at verse 21. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, the reason you say, I don't think you should be talking about money. You know why you don't like me talking about money? It's because you're in love with money. It's because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know who doesn't mind? You know who doesn't care when Pastor Jimenez preaches on tithing? People who tithe. <laughs> You know who gets mad? Well, I can't believe he's not preaching. You know, every time you get mad when I, when I, you know, I say money and you kind of, you kind of just give yourself away that you're not giving. You're covetous. You love money. You, you are, you know, the, the things of this world have caught your attention and it's foolishness because it's corrupt. It's moth-eaten. It will stay on this earth. The things of this world do not last and the things of this world do not satisfy. You're miserable. They last for a season. If you can get back to James, right before the book of James, you got the book of Hebrews. And I'd like you to go to Hebrews chapter number 11. Look at verse number 24. Hebrews chapter number 11 and verse 
24. Say, do you have to give in order to be, you know, part of Verity Baptist Church? No one has to. We don't, we have never forced anyone to give. And, and here's the thing. If you don't want to give, we don't want your money. The last thing we want is for someone to give and then complain about it. If you're going to give here and, co- and then complain, just keep your money. And, and, that, and I'm being serious. I'm not trying to have a bad attitude or an arrogant attitude, but honestly, we don't need your money. Uh, the Bible says that God will provide all our needs according to his riches and glory. And uh, we don't need your bad attitude. And, uh, and, and that's the truth. And I'm not, saying that with a bad, I'm, I'm not saying that with a bad attitude. I'm just saying you have a bad attitude. So, you know, fix your attitude. Hebrews 11, look at verse 24. Hebrews 11, verse 24, notice what he says. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He refused the things of this world that were temporary. Pharaoh is no longer king. Egypt is no longer a a world empire today. It was then, but it didn't last. You understand that? The United States of America will not be a world empire forever. One day, we'll, we'll, uh, some country will look at the United States of America and say, oh, they used to rule the world, but not anymore, just like we look at Pharaoh. But notice, Moses understood these things. He said, and he said, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He said, refuse the things of this world. He said, because they are temporary. Being a son of Pharaoh's daughter, it won't last. But notice verse 25. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Here's what we understand. There is pleasure in sin for a season. But eventually the highway wears off. Eventually you sober up. Eventually the money runs out. Eventually the vacation runs out. Eventually the cruise runs out. Eventually the car gets old. Eventually your house begins to deteriorate. And there's pleasure in sin. And there's pleasure in the things of this world for a season. And we're going to see it here in James. You can actually find more fulfillment and affliction than you can in pleasure. Because number one, we see in verses one through six there, the emptiness of pleasure. You can pursue pleasure. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity under the sun. You can pursue pleasure and you can just make your entire life about what makes me feel good and what I like. If it feels good, do it. But listen to me, you will end up miserable. You kids, listen to me. Don't grow up and become these people that are just constantly just looking for the next rush and the next party and the next job and the next this. You're going to end up miserable because there's emptiness and pleasure. Number two, for those of you to like, who like to take notes, not only is there emptiness in pleasure, verses 1 through 6, but verses 7 through 12, I'd like you to notice the endurance of patience. The endurance of patience. Notice verse 7, the encouragement to endure. In verse 7, the Bible says this, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Now, I want you to make notice this, the, the first two words in verse 7. Be patient. He says, Therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waited for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience. You see that word patience? The word patient means to endure. Hath long patience for it until he received the early and latter rain. Uh, James has given us an illustration. I love the illustrations in the book of James. He's constantly giving us illustrations. And he gives us yet another illustration here. He says, the way that we ought to live our lives, he said, you ought to live your life like a, like a husbandman, like, like someone who's, who's, who's growing a field. And here's what he says. He waited for the precious fruit. So here's what he said. He, he puts the seed down. He, he breaks the fallow ground. He, he breaks up the ground. He puts the seed down. He, he covers it back up. He, he waters it. You know, he, he does all this work and then he waits. 
And down the line, he goes and gets that reward and he gets that crop and he gets that harvest. And he says, that's how our lives are today. See, see, there are people today who have made their entire lives about right now and they're traveling and they're partying and they're having fun. And they look at people like me or people like, you know, people that just aren't into money and they'll say, you're wasting your life. They'll say, don't you know you could go, you can go do something else and you could go make more money if you weren't just so, you know, bogged down with, with, with the church. Or, or they'll say to you, you know, if you didn't go to that church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, if you didn't give them 10% of your income, if you didn't spend all your Saturday out sewing, if you just went and did other things, you could have more fun. But here's what you understand. I'd rather have the reward coming in the world to come. So you want to go on your little parties and your little you know, trips. And I'm not against you going on a trip. Please understand that. But, you know, I'd rather just say, you know what? I don't have the money to travel. I don't have the money to go on trips. But one day in the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'll travel this earth. While you're working away because you didn't go soul winning. And God says, well, you're going to be a servant, you know, and you're going to have to, you know, work now. Hey, you know, I'd rather work now and get a better reward that will not be taken away, that will not corrupt, a crown that won't corrupt, a crown that won't get lost and stolen. I'd rather work for the things. And he says, look, there is encouragement to endure in the fact, in the fact that Jesus is going to reward you for the work that you do. And I'd rather get the reward of Christ someday than the reward of this world today. Look at verse 8. Not only is there encouragement in coming rewards, but there's also encouragement in the fact that there's coming judgment. Look at verse 8. Be ye also patient. Notice this idea is about being patient. He says, be ye also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He says, here's why you want to be patient, because Jesus is coming back. The coming of the Lord draweth nigh. He says, grudge grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Do you understand that one day you will be judged by God? If you are not saved, you'll be judged at the great white throne judgment, and that's not good. You better just get saved. But even if you're saved, you will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ, and your life will be evaluated as as to see what did you do, what did you produce, what did you do that had eternal value. And that ought to encourage us to endure and to be patient and to say, you know what, it doesn't matter. The things of this world don't matter. The schedule of this world doesn't matter. I'd rather just serve God and get paid in eternity. So notice he gives us the encouragement for patience, but he also gives us an example for patience. Look at verse 10. James chapter 5, verse 10. Notice what he says. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. He says the, the prophets, when you read those Old Testament uh, you know, books of, of the prophets, you read that Jeremiah got thrown into the, and, and, and down into that pit and he suffered all those things. And, and you know, Isaiah had to walk around naked. You remember that chapter in the book of Isaiah? You know? And all, he says when you, when you read about these men that have struggled, he said that ought to be an example to you, an example of suffering, affliction, and of patience. Look at verse 11. Behold, now here's what I want you to catch. Behold, we count them happy which endure. And here's the crazy thing that, that doesn't un, we don't understand. It doesn't make logical sense. But the Bible teaches it, and it's true. You can be the most successful, rich, pleasure-filled person on earth and be miserable. Or you could be a man or a woman of God, and to the outside world, it looks like you're just struggling and in affliction and just barely making it. But there is a joy in your heart. There is a peace that passeth all understanding. 
And, and you, you, you can be like Joseph in, in, in prison and know that the Lord is with you and know that he prospers everything you do and know that, that he hasn't forsaken you. And he says, we count them happy. Look at verse 11. We count them happy, which endure. He says, enduring affliction produces joy, not pleasure, not riches, not parties. You have heard of the patience of Job. And I've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and tender mercy. And here's what you're going to understand. Go, go back to Hebrews. Remember we were in Hebrews 11? Go back to Hebrews chapter number 12. And here's what you're going to understand about, about Job, right? When your joy is connected to things of this world, when you are happy because you got that job that you think is so great, then look, your joy will end the moment that job ends. You understand that? You lose your job, now you're depressed, now you're discouraged. You lose your house, they take your house, they, they bank, you file for bankruptcy, whatever it is. When your happiness and your joy is determined by outside things, then those outside things determine how happy you are. But when your joy is in the Lord... And then you, like Job, can say, hey, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I was never happy because of those things. I was happy and joyful and content because of God. Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. He said, I've learned to, to be abased and abound. He said, things are going good, I'm happy. Things are going bad, I'm happy. Why? Because my happiness is not determined by how the stock market is doing. My happiness is determined in my relationship in Christ. And he said, you can be happy, which endure. He said, you have heard of the patience of Job and have seen the end of the Lord, and the Lord is very pitiful and tender mercy. Notice Hebrews chapter 12. You, you were in Hebrews 11, but now you're in Hebrews 12. Look at verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. And I want you to notice on this, that the first part of that verse, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Do you realize that up in heaven there are men like Job and Paul and Joseph and Peter that are up there and they are cheering you on. They're watching you run your race. The Bible says, look, wherefore we are, uh, we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witness. And I understand, Hebrews 12.1 is in context of Hebrews 11. If you remember Hebrews 11, we learned about all those great people of faith, Samson and David and Jephthah and Moses and, and all those men that by faith, Abraham, that by faith did these great things. And, and Hebrews 11 is all about these great characters that did great things. And then Hebrews 12.1 says, and on that note, on the fact that all these people are in heaven because they did great things, he says, we are compassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses, and they are watching us run our race, and they are cheering us on, and they are saying, don't quit, keep going, get them saved, stay at it. And he says, that ought to encourage you to endure. The fact that Job is up there cheering you on, and Paul, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love to get to heaven? And be able to high-five those guys and say, yes, I did it. Or just get in there and say, ah, you know, I messed it up. I wasted it. It's almost there, and I quit. He says there's an example of endurance, and that ought to cheer us on. Go to Romans chapter number 8. Romans chapter number 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter number 8. And the idea is this. Your life is a vapor. It appears for a little time and vanishes away. Whatever you're going through, it's just a short amount of time. The trials and afflictions, they're, they're just brief. 
Compared to eternity, they're not much. And look, some of you go, go through some hard things, and I'm not minimizing what you're going through. But what I'm telling you is this, that the Bible says that they're not worthy to be compared. Notice Romans chapter 8, look at verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. This was written by a man who had gotten beaten and stoned and imprisoned and, you know, uh, stabbed in the back by friends. Romans 8, 18. Notice what he says. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. I love that song. It will be worth it all when we see Jesus. Life's trials will uh, seem so small when we see Christ. And the truth is that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Go back to James chapter 5. Let me give you one more reference to the Sermon on the Mount. James chapter 5, look at verse 12. James chapter 5 and verse 12. The Bible says, But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. This is the last reference in James, uh, in the book of James to the Sermon on the Mount. Let me show it to you just real quickly. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, remember there's all these connections between James and the Sermon on the Mount. I'm just giving you the cross references. James 5.12 says to swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by any other oath. He says, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest ye fall into condemnation. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 34, in the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus Christ said this, Matthew 5 and verse 34, Jesus said, but I say unto you, notice how this is similar to what James is saying, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, neither by earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, neither shalt thou swear by by thy head, because thou canst not make one hair white or black, but let your communication be yea, yea, nay, nay, for whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. So again, you see that connection that James is kind of just taking the Sermon on the Mount and uh, reteaching it to us in the book of James. If you can get back to James chapter 5, we'll, we'll finish up here with point number 3. So point number 1, we saw the emptiness of pleasure. That was verses 1 through 6, for those of you who like to take notes. Point number 2, we saw the endurance of patience. That was verses 7 through 12. Now let me give you verses 13 through 18. We see the effectiveness of prayer. The effectiveness of prayer. Notice verse 13, James chapter 5 and verse 13. Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. And, I, I, and, and to be honest with you, I, I thought about preaching a whole sermon out of just this portion right here, but I thought I just preached a whole series on prayer, so we're just going to deal with it tonight. I'm uh, not spending a lot of time on it because I spent like eight weeks preaching on prayer just not too long ago. But look at verse 14. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Do you believe that? I mean, do we, do we believe that? Have we let the Pentecostals take this away from us? The prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise them up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Here, James is teaching that if there's someone in, in our congregation who's sick. Now, let me go ahead and give this disclaimer because I know some of you are going to try to talk to me after the service, all right? If it's a cold, if it's a cold all right, don't ask me to come to your house and anoint you with oil, all right? We're talking about serious sickness here, all right? Um, if it's just, you know, Pastor, I got a little headache. Okay, well, I don't know. 
I can, I can hit your chin, and then you'll forget about your head, I guess. I don't know. But, uh, you know, here we're talking about serious sickness. And I want you to notice a couple of things, okay? Because the Pentecostals have, have perverted these scriptures and have just made them, you know, lame. The, the Pentecostal and the charismatic movement. So I want you to notice verse 14. Is any, among, is any sick among you? Let him call for, notice, the elders, all right? The elders of the church. The word elder is used interchangeably in scripture. You can study it out on your own. I'm not going to take the time to do it tonight. The word elder is used interchangeably with pastor and bishop, all right? You are to call the elders of the church. The Pentecostal charismatic movement wants, you know, to think just any guy on, on the street, any random person in church can just come over and anoint you with oil and the Holy Spirit. Look, it's supposed to be a pastor, an elder, someone who meets some qualifications. So don't be anointing each other with oil. Don't be baptizing each other. Don't be baptizing yourself, all right? This is a Baptist church. I know some of you don't understand this, but in our church, we actually have an authority structure where the Bible is the, the word of God is the head. Jesus is the head. And then the pastor is the authority. And everything is supposed to be done with his you know, permission and accountability. And we've got all these churches out there today where men and especially women just want to run around and whatever pops into their head. They just, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And I'm not going to talk to anybody. I'm just going to run my own show. Hey, listen to me. We're in a Baptist church, okay? I don't really care what you did in your little community church, your liberal Baptist church, or wherever you went. It doesn't matter. At Verity Baptist Church, it's a pastor-led church. So don't let me hear that you are going around baptizing somebody, all right? We're going to have words. Or you're anointing someone with oil, or you're anointing yourself or baptizing yourself, all right? This is a Baptist church, all right? So you want to make sure that you follow the authority structure that God has given. You call the elders of the church and let them pray over him. And I want you to notice the anointing him with oil. Now, I do believe this is physical, literal oil, but I want you to notice that it represents uh, the Holy Spirit of God. Let me just give you one reference. We could, I could give you lots, but I'm not going to. Go to 1 Samuel chapter 16 and look at verse number 13. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 13. And let me go ahead and say this while we're at it. I am, got, I am getting sick and tired of this liberal idea that the pastor is not someone to be respected and the pastor is not someone that you run things through. I, I'm just kind of helping you guys understand something. We're going to put an end to that right now. This idea that you just walk up to the pastor and run your mouth and you just tell him what you're going to do and you go to the pastor's wife and you're not asking permission. You're telling her what you're going to do and you're telling him what you're going to do. It ends now, all right? I'm sick and tired of people just thinking they can do whatever they want. You run things through the pastor. And if you're a lady, you run them through my wife. You say, well, who is she? She's my wife and she's, she knows what I believe and she knows where I stand and I trust her and I don't trust you. All right, so we'll go ahead and deal with that now. 1 Samuel 16, look at verse 13. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13. You say, well, I don't like that. Well, you can go somewhere else. 1 Samuel 16, look at verse 13. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13. Notice what the Bible says. Then Samuel took the horn of oil. So notice the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren. And notice what the Bible says. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So notice that when David was anointed with oil, as soon as the oil hit David, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. In Scripture, you have this you know, analogy and this idea that the oil represents the Holy Spirit. So when we take someone, and we've done this in our church. I've done it to some of you sitting in this congregation. You know, and We take oil and we anoint your forehead with oil. What we're asking and what we are praying is that the Holy Spirit would heal you if it's according to His will. 
Go back to James chapter 5 and look at verse number 15. James chapter 5 and verse number 15. James 5.15 says this, And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. So notice, effective prayer requires faith. Effective prayer requires faith. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. But number two, I want you to notice, effective prayer requires fervency. Effective prayer requires fervency. Look at verse 16. Confess your faults. Now notice, it doesn't say sins. It says faults. We're not Catholic around here. Don't go around, i got to confess my sins. No, the Bible doesn't say you confess your sins one to another. It says you confess your faults one to another. The word fault is, not, uh, is different than sin. The word fault is just talking about like a struggle, a weakness. You know, it's okay for a man to go to another man and say, hey, listen, will you pray for me? I'm struggling in this area. But we don't need to hear your sin, all right? The Bible says if we confess our sins, He, talking about God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I don't need to hear all the stuff that you're into. It's okay for you to say, I'm struggling in this area. I have a fault in this area. Would you pray for me in this area? But we should keep it at that. But notice what he says. Confess your faults one to another. And here's the purpose. And pray one for another. The purpose is to pray. Don't go around confessing your faults for the purpose of gossiping, or don't go around, oh, let me tell you, I, I don't have any faults, but let me confess so-and-so's faults to you, all right? That's not the point. The point is to confess them one to another, so that we may pray one for another, that ye may be healed. Notice what he says, the effectual, the word effectual means effective, the effective, fervent, the word fervent means intensity and enthusiastic, it means you are on fire, you like, he says, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much accomplishes or produces much. Say, my prayers don't get answered. It's probably because they're not filled with faith or they're not filled with fervor. I mean, when's the last time you just prayed to God and cried out to God and just said, God, I need you to step in in this area. I need your help in this area. That's how prayers get answered. Look at verse 17. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. We preached about this in the prayer series, but Elijah was just like you and I. And God is no respecter of persons. If God will answer his prayers, he'll answer yours. Elias was a man subject to like passions as we are. And he prayed earnestly. The word earnest means purposeful or zealous that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again. And the heaven gave rain and the earth brought forth her fruit. So again, in this chapter we saw... And the emptiness of pleasure, verses 1 through 6, the endurance of patience, verses 7 through 12, and the effectiveness of prayer, verses 13 through 18. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer.